Hello, fellow writers. You have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripturiant Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, aka Lewis, aka Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that make a book work or not work on a literary level. If you have yet to read the books in this episode's title, feel free to come back once you have read them, or if you don't mind being spoiled, listen in as we discuss all the bookish things. <laughs> if you're not a writer, just a reader who wanted more content on this duology, welcome! I have a wide variety of things to talk about today, so let's get into the Fable and Namesake duology by Adrian Young. I will be spoiling both books in the duology, so keep that in mind before you listen on. Adrienne Young is sort of taking off, at least on writer Instagram and TikTok, so I'm almost sure most of you have heard of her. She wrote Sky in the Deep as well, which is the only other book by her I've read, and I also really enjoyed that one, but I did like this duology better. Uh, so first off, I want to talk about something more tangential to the writing process, which is the marketing that goes into a book. I'm not a marketer, and writers often don't have full control of this if they're with a traditional publishing agency, but I think it's worth talking about anyway. As a reader who publishers and writers are marketing to, I've noticed a few things. First off, when I first started reading Fable and found out the main character's name is literally just Fable, I was ridiculously disappointed. <laughs> I know this is subjective, but it feels really lazy to just title your book after your main character because then it comes across like you only named your main character something specifically unique and trendy to make a cool title and trick us into reading your book. 99% of the time, it doesn't tell us anything about what the book is actually about, and ideally that's what a title should do. You shouldn't give your character cool concept names just to bait readers. I hate this. I find it so annoying. It always makes me feel misled or cheated, like in 10,000 Doors of January, when January is just her name and not some aspect of the magic system. In something like Harry Potter, Harry Potter isn't that unique of a name. We can tell when we pick it up that it's a name. Plus, it has an additional tagline like, and the sorcerer's stone. So we learn more about the book in that instance. But if your main character's name is an object or concept, something that's not often used as a name like January, I don't think that's enough for a title because it's so misleading. I go into these books expecting some cool twist on the title, but then it's essentially meaningless or just a quirk of the parents. So when I picked up Fable, thinking it was going to include some cool world-building fairy tales or legends or something, and then found out it was just her name, I was almost angry. I know that sounds kind of silly, but I hate this. It really bothers me on a reader level. I feel tricked. If you want to give your main character a cool, weird name, go for it. I like that. Just don't make it the title. 99% of the time, this is my policy. But here's the thing with Fable. Then, then you get to book two, namesake, and everything slides into place. I don't know if Young started with a cool name and then intentionally wove it into the plot, or if she chose Fable to amplify the already existing plot, but these are the only books where I will make an exception, where the title being the main character's name makes sense and works, and it's just perfect. I love these titles now. They are perfect for what these books are, because Fable's mother named her Fable specifically so she would one day be led to a certain location with Fable in its name and come into her birthright, or, if you will, her namesake. Especially when combined, these titles are a hint for readers about what the theme is going to be. Fable's name acts as this 
map, this lifelong riddle given to her by her mother for her and only her to solve. And so her unique name does carry meaning aside from just being trendy. I think that's why it works as a single word title. Fable's name is a clue for her to solve, and using it as the title of the first book, followed by the second title, Namesake, is ultimately a hint for us as readers that these books are going to be fundamentally about family inheritance, of parents leaving legacies behind for their children to continue. At their core, these books are about what Fable's mother wanted for her and for her to be able to do with her life. The titles are essentially hints from the beginning that Fable's name is more than just a name, that it's going to lead her somewhere too it ends up making perfect sense in hindsight. So I don't know how much control Young had over that decision, but just excellent. My second marketing-related point is maybe a little more controversial. Uh, the tagline for both these books, you may have noticed, includes the concept phrase, quote, a young girl must find her place and family in a world built for men, which has obviously intentionally very feminist vibes, but like, why? This book isn't about feminism. I guess it comes down to what our definition of feminism is. But while feminism at its definitional concept is just women and men are equals, feminism as a theme has got to be more than that. In the actual books, there is literally no emphasis at all on our main character being limited for being a girl or for men being uniquely powerful. Gender isn't really a topic at all. Even our bad guys aren't particularly sexist or contained to one gender. It's not something to overcome here. There is a queen in Namesake. There is another girl on Fable's ship. There are also powerful men. But women aren't oppressed in this society in any way I can see. So is what we mean by feminism just women exist and are written well? Because I don't think that's enough to make it a theme or a marketing platform. Should that not just be a given? It's like marketing a book on the basis of the characters breathing oxygen. If you're going to market your book on the basis of feminism, its theme or at least topic needs to somehow be feminist. Not every book with female characters is about feminism. In many books, it's just a built-in reality of the world, like gravity. We can assume it. We're not denying it. But it's not meant to be the point. To be described as feminist or seen in a feminist light, I think that needs to be the story's fundamental point. Part of the reason I noticed this is because, personally, I don't tend to enjoy books that are actively about feminism. It's a personal taste thing I've noticed, and I just prefer more universally accessible themes, while feminism is going to hit differently depending on gender and experience and time. So I went into this book really reluctantly, thinking I wasn't going to like it. But I did like it. I loved it. And part of that was because we didn't wax on about women. We just showcased them in awesome ways alongside some equally great male characters, heroes and villains both. Books that treat women realistically aren't going to really need to draw attention to that fact. They'll just draw their characters, male and female, well. And I like that, when we can just assume the starting place of gender equality and move on to what else the world has to offer. Because I think there's a lot for women to enjoy outside of just feminism. There's nothing wrong with making a statement about it, people certainly like that, but books that are specifically feminist are going to have a specific point to make about that, rather than assuming it as an established reality. So I guess my question is, why market this book in a feminist light when that's not what it's about? Did Young intend for it to subtly be about that? It's possible I didn't pick up on it. Or, I think, was it manipulation to get a bunch of more feminist readers to give it a chance? 
the problem with that, if that's what happened, is someone expecting a triumphant feminist story was likely disappointed, while marketing it that way almost prevented me, the prime target audience, from reading it at all. I only bought these books because I found them on sale. They legitimately sat on my TBR for much longer than they would have had they been marketed more in line with their actual theme. But maybe that's just because I have a different definition of what qualifies a book as feminist. I would argue pretty much all books being published today are fair to women, at least the ones I've read in YA. So if it's not the theme, I just don't see how that's a standout trait anymore. That's not going to draw me. I don't know, but I just thought that was a weird way to market a book that is fundamentally about inheritance and family and found family and the sea. Feminism is only involved in the sense that our main character is a girl, and she's awesome. Speaking of fable, marketing point three. These covers are excellent. Also probably not a choice on Young's part, but she must have a great team because the covers of this duology, when put together, make a face. It looks a lot like Ash, aka Tolkien, also. Just saying. Very beautiful, and they look lovely on my shelf, which is always a bonus. I now have a shelf specifically for ocean-themed books, which I am very excited about because... reader things. Anyway, let's get into the actual story and actual choices made by Adrienne Young. These books are young adult fantasy. That's their genre. That's how they were marketed. That feels really accurate. There is a very fantasy vibe to them, for sure. And yet, Magic is not really a big deal here. You'll notice it's rare in the story, and I think there's only one kind, which is strange for a fantasy book. I've been seeing some chatter around discussing whether or not fantasy books inherently have to have magic. Some people are saying that they technically just have to be about made-up lands, and I do fundamentally disagree with that. I think magic is what makes it a fantasy. I think that's one of the conventions of the genre. Um, but this book is evidence that fantasies don't have to have big magic systems or strong magical themes to work on a fantasy level. This world is geographically made up. It carries a very escapist vibe to it, like an epic mashup of Pirates of the Caribbean and Lee Bardugo. I do think there needs to be some magic to make a book a fantasy. Otherwise, I would call it more broadly speculative fiction or maybe alternate history or sci-fi depending on the direction it takes but I am now convinced it doesn't need to be magic on the level of Mistborn or Harry Potter to be strong. The magic in these books did feel like the right size for a duology. Sometimes short series can make their world so big I'm left with more questions than answers by the end, and that can be frustrating if there's no intent to write more in that world. So there is a place for subtler fantasies where the focus can therefore be diverted more to character rather than plot or world building. You do need all three, but you can concentrate on one more than the others based on the story or your taste and still make a great fantasy. These books are very character-heavy. They are character-led books, even though there are a lot of other awesome, interesting details pulling us into the story. I do love the themes. I do love the plot. I do love the world. But on the flip side of worlds being too big, Sometimes when books have subtle magic, it can read like laziness on the author's part, like they didn't put the work into a complex system or borrowed from an existing one for plot's sake. But in this duology, it's so poignant, I can tell it was intention rather than laziness. We were intended to focus more on the characters, including Fable and her particular type of magic. The magic does its job and acts as a catalyst and a motive and a means for a lot of the action, but it isn't fundamentally the point. That doesn't make this not a fantasy, it just makes it a character-focused fantasy. Fable having magic focuses us on her. 
with it being the only kind of magic we're exposed to, it centers us on her and her friends, and I really enjoyed all the ways that played out in these books. So if you as an author love fantasy, but you don't want to create a big magic system or end up borrowing a cliche one, particularly if you're only writing one or two books in that world, a small instance of profound magic can be far more impactful than a big system. I don't think this would be true in a longer series, but the subtler magic in these books actually make the stakes feel higher, almost more sacred, because of the character impact, the character focus. We aren't distracted by all the cool world-building details, though some do exist. We are homed in on a particular piece of the world, and it pays off so well considering the themes of family and found family, which are also, by nature, more personal than broad. Alright, on to a fun fact. Ready? I am not actually all that into the ocean. Is that a controversial thing to say? Ash is into the ocean. Most everyone else I know is. But I am not. I have never once had the urge to go to a beach. I am more of a desert or forest or mountain type of girl. You cannot pay me to swim in the ocean most days. My worst fear is being stranded at sea, and I live in a landlocked state. And yet I really like books that take place on ships. Maybe because I don't have to physically be there or something, but ships and books are great. I've made this point with Ash before that ships, either spaceships or seafaring ships, are maybe my favorite underdone trope. I think it's because they're great fodder for a found family, being isolated and forced together until they love each other, where everyone carries equal importance in the group. It's that awesome us-against-the-world vibe in a group of friends rather than just a romantic pairing. I mean, don't get me wrong, romantic ships are fun too. I like the romance sometimes, but people need more in life than just that. So the found family with some pairings within it just makes my heart happy. To have that do or die with friends as well as or instead of a significant other is so wonderful. It feels like building a life, not just one relationship. And fundamentally, I think that's why I loved this duology. The crew of the ship starts out really antagonistically against Fable, but she ends up becoming one of them despite all their efforts to push her away. I think this is my favorite trope, and I think it's my favorite because it makes me feel like people can belong together rather than just happening upon each other. The romance in this book, even the friendships, none of it is obvious from the start. At the beginning, we're a bit unsure who our main cast of characters is going to end up being because Fable doesn't start out even knowing who most of them are. But by the time it grows there, it feels really natural. We get to see all the inner workings of their start together, and it's great. It's also interesting that by the end of the book, they don't all stay together. Usually I really want this in a found family. I want them to stay in an us-against-the-world vibe for, like, all of time. But here it really works that they don't, because Young built in from the beginning that one of the members never really wanted to be on the ship in the first place, that she was doing it because she loved and wanted to be with her brother. And so the end scene, where she finds a new place and the crew continues on without her but still sometimes visiting her, showcases this ability to branch out of the familiar when what you want is different from the ones you love, how you can love people from afar and how that doesn't necessarily diminish the relationship, how that's okay. Like, people can go their own directions in life to meet unique callings without it separating them from the people they love. And that's usually a tough ending to pull off with a found family vibe, but it works here because of the groundwork and the fact that they still see each other every so often afterwards. 
No one wants their found family to be permanently separated, so please never do that. But growing up and building individual lives that can build on each other is the way to make it really satisfying in the end. If you want people to really connect and attach to the characters in your story, I do personally recommend the found family. I think the found family is the best way to go. People do like romance too, I get that, but romance can be very hit or miss, depending on if the love interest is the reader's type. Um, I find I can't connect to love interests who straddle the line between protective and abusive, or are too perfect, or are too weak. Part of this can be chalked up to bad writing sometimes, but some of it is just legitimately a taste thing. I was never as into Gale as I was to Peta. I was never as into the boys from The Raven Boys or Snow Like Ashes as I was to the boys in Caraval or Mistborn. Besides, I think the standards for romance are so much higher because you can only have one love interest. And everyone, even when it comes to what we feel about what's best for the main character, has personal taste about what that means. Some people thought Bella was truly better off with Jacob. Some people, <clears throat> me, didn't. Even in love triangles, you can only choose one love interest to continue on with your main character by the end. This simultaneously makes romance a bigger and yet more limited type of relationship, and found family isn't limited like that. By nature, it can absorb anyone it wants and create a group. It can stay isolated or it can bring in new people, including love interests for the main characters. If you don't like one member of the found family, there are others there to bolster your opinion of the group or your enjoyment of the story. It isn't as fraught with tension, isn't as make or break, and provides the main character with a variety of relationships rather than just one to hinge all hope on. Besides, there's a romance in these books too. You can include both. You can have swoon-worthy scenes while also including great friendships, and I think that's the kind of balance most readers want because that's the kind of balance that's healthy in real life. Books are escapes in many ways, yes, but including the good and healthy things in life in your story can add to realism just as much as adding death and sorrow and failure. That's what I feel found family brings to the table, and so I just love it. Found family isn't the only great aspect of these books, though. There are some great, complex parental relationships going on here. A major theme of this duology seems to be contrasting the difference between biological family and found family, how you can fit with one or the other at various times in your life and still love them equally, how they build on each other, how there's no shame in paving your own way and creating a family for yourself because your given family has laid the proper groundwork to make you capable of it. Sometimes you do need to branch out, but what your given family leaves you with will always be fundamental to who you are and infinitely valuable. The original catalyst of book one is Fable seeking out her father, who abandoned her on an island community after her mother tragically died. So the relationship we see between Fable and her mother is all after her death, with Fable piecing together little details she can remember and details her mother left behind for her to learn. Because her mother died when she was so young, she's getting to know all her secrets and past, finding out what her mother wanted for her and who she really was now that she's already gone. It hangs a sense of loss over the story, but never to a depressing degree. It's a unique way to do grief, I think, because Fable simultaneously misses her mother, but has also been dealing with her death for several years now, and what she really wants is her father, who's still alive. Fable spends most of the story feeling she has to prove herself to him so he'll love her, and that's what she wants more than anything, even when her friends warn her it might not go well. 
So when it does inevitably go badly, she believes he never loved her at all, that she was a concession to her mother for him, that she now reminds him too much of her dead mother and he could never love anyone as much as he loved her. And while I don't think parents should withhold love, and I don't really think he goes about it in the best ways, that's not really what's going on here. Her father is a powerful guy and has an image to uphold, and yes, he loved her mother so much that losing her essentially broke him. But for her and for himself, he only wants to do right by Fable. Even at the moment of his wife's death, his first order of business was loving Fable because she was the piece of her left, the legacy they left together. I think this is a really overlooked point in a lot of YA books, the idea of parents being flawed and making mistakes, but still loving their children in ways the kids can't understand until they're older. We all know the trope of dead parents because it forces the teenagers to be competent, but parental relationships are an enormous reality for most teenagers. It's a far more likely theme a teenager will have to deal with than a dystopian reality. A lot of YA books focus on more broad concepts like war or beliefs, but it was refreshing to read a book about how to love your children and how to forgive your parents while still operating on a really epic plot level. Though he loved her mother, Fable was the person her father actually loved the most, and he wanted her to live a life better than the one he could provide for her. He wanted her to have her own life, the way her mother struck out and found him once. Both her parents left her with her name and their love for her, and that's all she needed to build her own future. That's what parents should want for their kids, and this was just such a great take on how to go about that. On a lighter note, my last sort of random point is about Fable's hobby slash career. She is a free diver. Again, like Ash aka Tolkien. I found this a really fascinating element to the story because I know almost nothing about freediving. Um, for those of you who don't know, freediving is essentially controlling your breathing to a degree that you can dive deep and for several minutes at a time underwater with no breathing assistance. I looked it up and apparently the average freediver can stay underwater for more than 10 minutes at a time. That's insane. Now, Fable uses this skill to hunt for gems formed in underwater ocean reefs and landscapes to pay her way off the island and back to her father. And she also hides her money deep underwater in a bay so only she can get to it, which is an awesome hiding place, by the way, because even if someone knew it was there, they could do nothing about it. It was so interesting to see how this skill worked in her life, how she developed it, how it created competition and strife, but also moments of peace in her life. It's something she had to learn to earn a living, but something she grew to love too. It's how she earns her job on the ship with her found family. She's a drudger. And this is such a cool role that I loved reading about. I love learning about unique skills and jobs like this that someone else did the research on. <laughs> It gives richness to character and adds a unique factor to a book, as well as giving the characters useful skills that may be rare and therefore desirable in their world. Give your main character in particular an interesting hobby, not just reading or writing or watching TV. There's nothing wrong with those, it's just that they're pretty universally accessible to most of us. We know about those things. Give us something new to experience as readers. I loved it here. I love it when this is done. I did that thing a lot where I held my breath for the scenes where she was underwater and I could not do it, so freedivers are super impressive. But as a skill for a main character, it also had purpose. It wasn't just a random thing she did sometimes. It gave her a lot of depth, no pun intended, and a reason to be on the ship and an ability she earned rather than was born with that made her desirable to friends and enemies alike. Even when you're talking about a fantasy world where powers may be inherited, characters needing to put 
a certain degree of work into a particular skill, magical or otherwise, can make them feel really competent overall and worth rooting for. So this is a great trait to add to your characters, main and secondary, but especially main. Because Fable shared this hobby with her mother and the love interest, but because she still had to work for it, it felt like something she had both inherited and earned, which is sort of the perfect storm, again, no pun intended, for any ability, and goes nicely with the theme of this duology specifically. Fable's ability to free dive drives the plot, especially because it's related to her magical skill set too, where she can hear different types of gems essentially humming at different frequencies in order to locate and identify them. What a unique sort of magic, right? This is also inherited from her mother, and it is magic, but she put in the work to hone it and create something unique out of it. She uses this for the harvesting stage of the gem trade rather than the appraisal stage like most people in her world. So it's a known skill, but one that she uses differently. It's also very subtle, a focused type of magic. So while she's hunted for this skill, she's also thought valuable because of the way she uses it, which is fully attributed to her and not an inheritance. It makes her realistically unique even to her world, and I just loved learning about all the dredging details and dangers that gave the story tension. No other character would reasonably be able to react so calmly and logically to getting pulled in by a rip current. No other character would have been able to find her namesake the way she did because of the way it was located in the water. Fable was perfectly crafted to the story, but since the trait was earned, it feels real and not contrived. Just loved it. As writers, we need to strive to give our main characters talents like this, interesting to readers, but not just for the sake of it. We need to give them abilities that reasonably propel the plot forward and explain, predict, or encourage their particular reactions to what's in and out of their control. That's how you make a memorable main character and a standout plot even in a character-driven narrative. So for all these reasons and more, I'm definitely excited to read other Adrienne Young books. Um, she's very good at character and character motivation, so read more of her stuff if that's something you struggle with like I do. I would recommend you guys read these anyway if you haven't already because I didn't even spoil as much as I thought I would need to. Um, there are a lot of other really great elements I didn't even touch on, so give it a read or a reread for a subtle fantasy done well. And that's all for this episode. Hopefully you got some good writing tips out of this discussion, and I will see you on the next page. <laughs>